Rare is it that one of the most popular bands in the world visits Charleston, West Virginia? That's exactly what happened the afternoon of April 28, 1991, when REM performed on West Virginia Public Broadcasting's nationally syndicated Mountain Stage with Larry Gross. Hi, I'm Nathan Thomas, and this is A Big Band Comes to a Small Town, REM on Mountain Stage at 25. There's a spring in the mountain and it flows down to the town. While we'll go into detail about the importance of the show, perhaps it could be summarized best by Larry Gross's introduction that afternoon. But to start us off, we have a group from down Athens, Georgia, whose latest record is called Out of Time on Warner Brothers Records. And they fit all the qualifications that we have here on the mountain stage. They're talented, they're innovative, they're entertaining. They're not afraid to change when their artistic instincts tell them to. Plus, they have one thing that most people who appear on mountain stages don't have, and that is about 10 million fans. Would you welcome R.E.M.? With 2016 being the 25th anniversary of that appearance and the Out of Time album, the band is celebrating with Out of Time, 25th anniversary deluxe edition reissue, which includes the mountain stage performance in its entirety for the very first time. We've collected memories to create this look back to that historic weekend for Charleston, West Virginia. Later, we'll hear from people who were in the audience that afternoon, and also from mountain stage creators Larry Gross and Andy Reinauer. But we'll begin with veteran music journalist Annie Zaleski, who wrote the liner notes for the reissue, who explains why in 1991, R.E.M. decided not to tour behind the album. So I, I think R.E.M. decided to take a breather as 1990 rolled around for a variety of reasons. Uh, for starters, they had just been on the road almost for the last decade pretty consistently. I mean, throughout the 80s, their pattern was release a record, go on tour. Their tours were also pretty extensive. If you, if you kind of look at their archival tour dates, they were, they were very long tours and they were pretty grueling. So I think they just kind of wanted to take a little bit of a break and change things up a little bit. Despite the extensive touring hiatus, the band did make three public appearances to promote the album, NBC Saturday Night Live, MTV Unplugged, and Mountain Stage, the only ticketed event of the three. Zaleski explains how different of an environment Mountain Stage was for the band compared to the other 1991 shows. What was interesting about having the Mountain Stage show next to Saturday Night Live and Unplugged is that each of them were slightly different. Um, you know, Saturday Night Live, I think, was the more traditional, hey, we're promoting the record, we're promoting our singles, we're going to go out there and, you know, do the late-night TV thing. Unplugged was very similar in that it was also, you know, it was filmed for MTV, so they, you know, they were kind of, they were very specific about what they wanted to do and how they wanted to present the music. What's always struck me about Mountain Stage uh, then and then also kind of looking back at it now is just how joyous and loose it was, you know? I mean, I think it's a cliche to say, well, R.E.M. was getting back to their roots, but they were sort of getting back to their roots as, you know, just kind of a, a band hanging out, playing some music together, having a good time, having their friends. I mean, Billy Bragg and Robin Hitchcock were there. So it was just a really kind of celebratory almost low-pressure experience. Zaleski says that appearing on the show allowed them to be in a small-town environment, which they thrived in, while also reaching a worldwide radio audience. I think West Virginia's location as well, too, because, you know, it's off the beaten path. 
it's kind of similar to where the band's from, the band's from Athens. So R.E.M. was really kind of at home. But what was also nice about uh, Mountain Stage was that they recorded it, so it was broadcast to a lot of other places. So they didn't necessarily have to go on tour. They could be in this one place, you know, record and play this wonderful concert, and then it was sort of disseminated to many other stations. So everyone could hear them, and they could reach all their fans in other cities. Radio, I can't hear it. When I got to the house and I called you out, I could tell you had been crying. It's that same sing song on the radio that makes me sad. For those who are there, the weekend has become a time that holds a special place in their memory. We've collected pictures and video which can be viewed on wvpublic.org. We've also talked with members of that April 28, 1991 audience. We'll start with Mark Wolf, a Charleston, West Virginia photographer who had good word from Mountain Stage band member Michael Lipton that the show was occurring. Well, my initial reaction was disbelief. Um, I have had uh, different experiences of bands being announced that they were coming to Charleston before. And uh, unfortunately, those uh, experiences were not to come to fruition. But this time in particular, I had on very good authority that they were. Um, my good friend at the time, Michael Lipton, uh, who's still my good friend, he told me that uh, they were indeed coming. They would be playing a set uh, on Mountain Stage. Joanna Tabbitt, a lifelong REM fan from Charleston, West Virginia, and now a circuit judge in the city, recalls waiting in line to get tickets to the show. I can't remember how it was. I actually heard that they were going to, REM was going to be coming. You knew the tickets were going to be very difficult to come by, but I was committed to getting them and was successful in securing them. <laughs> I think I think they went on sale. I want to see maybe the tickets were on sale in February. Um, and it was a Sunday morning. I do remember that. And uh, I was actually pretty, pretty good at, at securing tickets. And I, and I attribute that to my, to my friend John Nelson <laughs> at Budget Chase. You know, they would, they would typically um, open up at 10 o'clock. And if you were among the first in line at 10 o'clock, you knew you would get, you know, you, you knew you would get good seats. Obviously, it wasn't, you didn't have to be a first person in line for this because it was going to be uh, um, an open seating type uh, arrangement, as I recall it was. So you knew you wanted to get there early. It was cold. It was rainy. But it was fun because um, you actually knew a lot of the people who you were in line with. They were, you know, your your friends and uh, obviously fellow fans. Nick Paquette, also an R.E.M. fan from Charleston, who found the band in high school with the release of their album Life's Rich Pageant, thought that the setting made the concert all the more exclusive and intimate. I mean, it was it was unbelievable. I, you know, I had never seen them at the time either, and I, them being my favorite band, I, you know, I, I was always looking for opportunities to be able to see them, and then for this to just land in a city that I was living in, such a special event, um, I mean, just the buzz was unbelievable. There was a lot, a lot of excitement. Not all audience members were from West Virginia. John Collins, a lifelong resident in the Boston, Massachusetts area, knew that the sparse appearances would be must-see for any diehard R.E.M. fan. I think uh, R.E.M. Um, did a good job of uh, letting people know that um, you know they weren't going to tour for a little while after basically being on the road 
for all of the 80s. In fact, uh, Peter Buck played with Robin Hitchcock and the Egyptians at a uh, small club near Fenway Park called the Paradise Theater. And there was an article in the Globe the next day, and I remember his quote saying, we're going to be like the Archies. We're just going to stay home and make records for a while. So actually there were uh, three things with the uh, out-of-time release. They did Unplugged, they appeared on Saturday Night Live, and then the Mountain Stage Show. So I had a friend who had a connection, uh, so I got to go to the dress rehearsal of the SNL appearance, and then uh, my friend who made it down to West Virginia with me, she had some connection because she was working for Warner Electric Asylum at the time, uh, and she got to see the Unplugged show. So between the two of us, we covered uh, all three of their appearances in 91. So she was able to get on the guest list for the Mountain Stage show, and um, you know, it just became a debate as to whether uh, I could take the time I needed to take that Monday off. I remember the show was on a Sunday, and, and obviously, since it was a long drive from Boston, um, I'm glad to say, 25 years later, they said, you know what, one vacation day isn't really going to make a difference, but uh, I'm sure I'll remember the show for a long time. So, um, yeah, we hopped in my '88 Pulsar and. Uh, Drove the 16 hours. I had never been to West Virginia. I remember we stopped somewhere, maybe 10 hours in, and we thought we were close. And, of course, this is the days before, you know, GPS and all that. So all we had was triptychs from AAA, and, and we thought we were close. We stopped someplace to get gas and something to eat, and they said, no, you got about another six hours to go. And we didn't believe him, but uh, he was right. We probably didn't roll into Charleston until – probably like uh, two or three in the morning. I think we had a B to the venue probably around noon. So yeah, we didn't get much sleep and, but uh, again, all worth it. The song you're listening to now is by a band who had a connection to R.E.M. Joanna Tabak connected these dots when she saw that the Dashboard Saviors were performing in Charleston, West Virginia the night before. And well, I'll let her tell you all about it. And I can tell you, I, I told my friends, and this is the kind of stalker's person that I that I was, the band, the Dashboard Saviors, who was playing at that bar till Betty's that night, was an Athens, Georgia band. And uh, and they played there periodically, and we'd gone to see them before at that same venue, that same bar. And uh, I knew that, that Peter Buck was friends with some of those fellows. And I'm like, look, if they're, if they're in town, if R.E.M. is in town for the Mountain Stage show, and this band is playing here, they're going to go see them. <laughs> you know, logic serves that that would happen. So uh, we uh, we knew that, well, that's a place we would ordinarily go anyway, and that's a band we would ordinarily see, and, and I'll bet they'll be there. So today, take cameras. <laughs> so it's not like, a you know, uh, now when everyone has smartphones and can just whip out your phone and start taking pictures, you had to be a little bit more calculated about it then. It was at Tilt Daddy's that Tabat had an encounter with bassist Mike Mills, who appeared to have been at Watt Powell Park, a minor league baseball park in the area, earlier that day, as he was sporting a Charleston Wheelers ball cap. Yeah, he was just sitting there by himself, and he really did look like a yokel. 
if you didn't know who he was, because it was relatively early in the evening, you know. And uh, he had his wheeler's cap on, and no one was talking to him. So I sauntered up, and, and I said, you know, I, um, I know I know you're Mike Mills, and welcome to our fair city. I can't wait to see your show tomorrow. Of course, I'd seen them several times previously by that point in time, but I was really looking forward to seeing them at Mountain Stage. And I said, congratulations on the new CD. I really like it. And he goes, well, you know what? I'll let you buy me a drink. A drink. And I did have a good quip. And, and he laughed. and said, you know what? You sold about 2 million CDs. I think you can buy me a drink. And he did. We're on the BBC today. We're being broadcast uh, over uh, Radio 1 BBC. I'd like to say hello to all the folks over there. I thought I would uh, introduce him because it's this time of the year with a little quote. One that April with his shortest sota. The draught of March had pierced to the rota, and bathed every vein in sweet liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the floor. Roughly translated, that means, would you welcome, for the first time to the mountain stage, Mr. Robin Hitchcock. At that time, live performances of mountain stage occurred at 3 p.m., rather than the now standard start of 7 p.m. The line began to form early the morning of April 28, 1991, at the Capitol Theater in Charleston. During the wait for doors to open, Robin Hitchcock appeared outside to entertain the growing line. Nick Paquette was in that line. That morning, you know, I mean, we just couldn't, we just couldn't wait to get up and, and head down there. Um, got there a few hours early and just, you know, it was just, it was just electric, just waiting and being in line and just, um, it was, it was, it was amazing. We were we were in line. I remember, and I didn't see him come out. Um, just all of a sudden, I, you know, I was just talking to people online, and all of a sudden, I looked to my right, and I mean, literally about ten feet away, he had. Uh, I guess there was a kid studying in in line because we had been there for a while, so he was studying, and and all of a sudden, Robert Hitchcock had his his textbook and was just reading out of it. And I mean, just like a, just you know, like it was Shakespeare. I can't remember what it was, what what the what the what the book was about, but, uh, I mean, he was, he was giving it his all. It was, it was entertaining. Mark Wolf recalls that the performances outside the venue were just as memorable as what would later happen inside. It was a, uh, uh, it was a mathematics book, and, and he, he made up a song on the spot based on the description of a mathematical theorem. So, uh, yeah, they, they, it was an incredible uh, event outside the theater as well as inside that day. As for the show itself, Biquette vividly remembers the set list, relaying that the venue made it all the more special. You know, I was I was I was looking forward to hearing anything, particularly old stuff. They, um, you know, they came right out and started with uh, "Worldly to Pretend," and um, "Losing My Religion" was huge then. I mean, that's what really blew them up, and obviously they played that. And um, um, radio song was really good, and then the song from "Life's a Treasure Don't Fall on Me." Uh, is still one of my favorites. Um, so uh, that was that was really great to hear live. But just the just the small venue, just the you know, just it being so in, exclusive, and um, just how special it was. And you knew it was going out live to fans all over the world that would have loved to be sitting in your seat. Though REM was the marquee act, Wolf says that the audience loved every moment of the show. The whole house just absolutely reacted to each musician just as enthusiastically as R.E.M. And that's what I remember. I just remember the warmth, both from the artists and also the audience. It was a real give and take that day. 
John Collins notes that the long drive from Boston was well worth getting the unique mountain stage experience. Obviously, they were doing stuff off of Out of Time. They ended up doing Radio Song twice, once during the broadcast, and they played a few songs after the broadcast had ended, and so they did uh, Radio Song a, a second time. Um, they did Disturbance at the Heron House, which is my all-time favorite R.E.M. song. Um, I remember Michael uh, singing with Billy Bragg and uh, Peter playing with uh, Robin. And then uh, at the end, I think it was the last song of the broadcast, they did, uh, everyone who had performed that day got on stage, they did uh, Get Up and uh, Have You Ever Seen Dallas from a DC-9 at Night. Um, I remember R.E.M. got... um, a plaque or an award of some sort from the governor of West Virginia, and they, they uh, declared that date as uh, REM Day. And uh, they seemed um, really touched and, and pleased by that. They, just everyone was in a great mood, great spirits. It was, you know, a little bit loose and uh, a lot of fun with, um, you know, everyone sort of um, playing with their band or solo, as the case may be, but then uh, mixing it up a little bit and, and the all-star jam at the end. It was just, uh, it was a lot of fun and uh, definitely uh, glad I did it. Collins remembered that then-Governor Gaston Caperton, First Lady Rachel Warby, and Larry Gross declared the day, April 28, 1991, as REM Day in the state of West Virginia. Whereas Rolling Stone magazine called R.E.M. America's most resourceful rock and roll band, and... Whereas R.E.M. has selected Mountain Stage for one of only three appearances following the release of their latest Warner Brothers LP, Out of Time, and... Whereas tickets for R.E.M.'s April 28, 1991 performance on Mountain Stage sold out within 15 minutes, and... Whereas R.E.M. has demonstrated significant support for public radio, both on the local and national level, by their appearance on Mountain Stage, now... Therefore, we declare today R.E.M. Day. Buy the sky and sell the sky. Tell the sky and tell the sky. Now let's move from the audience to behind the scenes with a look at the R.E.M. show from Mountain Stage host Larry Gross and executive producer at the time, Andy Reinauer. We'll start with Gross, who recalls an earlier visit with an REM band member. Peter came with Kevin Kenny and did a duo thing, and at that time, it must have been 1990, Peter said to me, he had a good time afterwards, and he said, "Uh, this is a great show, it's a lot of fun, I'm going to bring my band back sometime. And I said, great, that would be wonderful. And of course, I thought, that'll never happen. When Burtis Downs, R.E.M. advisor, who grew up in Smithers, West Virginia, contacted the Mountain Stage office later that year, Ridenauer couldn't believe it. It was, uh, it was August of 90, uh, the first time Burtis called, and I didn't know Burtis at that time. And, and uh, when he said that they wanted to have R.E.M. on the show, I thought it was actually somebody probably playing a practical joke on me. But I went along with it and said, sure, we'd love to have R.E.M. on the show, and... and uh, and I said, you know, what time period were you looking at? And he said, they weren't sure yet. And I said, well, give me a call back and you have more details. And that was pretty much the first phone call. As again, I thought it was more of a practical joke. 
and uh, and that, then I went to Larry and asked him about REM, and that's when he said what he said. And sure enough, uh, Burtis called us back about a month later and said they wanted to do the show in April. Uh, we started working on the plans from there. Gross immediately knew that they had to have the band on the show. I don't ever get those calls because I'm not in uh, the um, office. Andy was in the office, and I, I actually remember where I was standing. I was I was going towards the studio, and Andy came up to me and he said, uh, "Would you like to have REM on the show?" I thought he was joking, but I deadpanned and I said, "Yes, Andy, I'd like to have them on the show." any time of the day, any day of the week. So just tell them if they want to come 2 a.m. on a Tuesday, we'll make a show for them. It was important to the band, who were fans of the show, that the show did not change drastically for their appearance, though they did make recommendations as to who they'd like to appear alongside. We had a format in those days where the band that was going to close the show also opened the show. And some of the acts did two sets. Most of them just did one, except for R.E.M. So they, they opened and closed. They said, no, we don't want to do anything different. We want you to do the show just like you always do it. So we said, great, perfect. We, we asked them, do you have any suggestions of acts? And they, were, they suggested Billy and Robin as possibilities. We said, sure, we'd love to have them on anyway. They were on our radar. And then uh, we knew Gregson and Collister. They'd been on before, so... We put them on, too. That R.E.M. didn't know them, I don't think, but they liked them once they heard them. So we had it filled up. So funny enough, it was all British acts, except for R.E.M. Later, the BBC ran the show on Boxing Day. Here's Hour on the subject. There was a lot of work leading up to getting it done, because uh, they, they, uh, uh, we had a great relationship with Warner Brothers Records prior to that, that they were uh, the, the label of record at that time, and, and uh, they, they had a lot of... Uh, discussions with us about what they wanted to do for the band when they got there and, and, uh, and uh, in terms of their, uh, what they perceived to be REM's comfort needs. And the whole time we're also talking to Burtis Downs, and Burtis is just telling us they, are, they, the, the guys in the band just want to do the show the way we do it and, and that they didn't want any extra attention or, or uh, et cetera. And, and that's the way the show came off. By then... Mountain Stage made the Culture Center Theater its home, but for REM's visit, they decided to move it back to the Capitol Plaza Theater. When uh, Buck did the show with Kevin Kenny, uh, it was at the Capitol Plaza Theater. And so in our discussions uh, about the venue, I can't remember if it was us or, or, or them that suggested we go to the Capitol Plaza Theater. We had mentioned to them that the Capitol Plaza Theater was... Uh, uh, sort of on a chopping block. We didn't know if it was going to be around. So we decided to, uh, uh, to, to go back to the Capitol Plaza Theater, uh, that we would make this a fundraiser for Mountain Stage. Uh, we were going to charge the exorbitant price at that time of $20 a ticket, which we had never done. It had always been, you know, a family ticket was $5 back then, or admission was $3 for a single person. Uh, and REM agreed to, you know, go into back into that theater and uh, try to do something to help support the theater and, and make it uh, something worthwhile for, for Mountain Stage. Tickets for the show sold out quickly, though many of them went for resale at higher prices. They said, I saw an advertisement in uh, the Columbus Underground paper offering $1,200 for a ticket to R.E.M. I said, tell them for 2500 they can host it. While many were eager for the show itself, 
A few were waiting for it to finally be over with, including the front desk staff at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Two weeks leading up to the show, the phone at the office never stopped ringing. And this is before we had direct lines going to everybody's desk. Uh, everything had to come through the operator at the front desk. They, I don't think anybody was more happy to see that show produced and done and moving on to the next one because all the phone calls stopped. When the national broadcast had ended, the band agreed to perform longer for the audience in the theater and the statewide radio network. And then we told them, you know, after the show is over, the one hour is over, you can play as long as you want for the audience that's there. But then we also, I didn't know they were going to make the executive decision just to keep it on the radio here in West Virginia. It wasn't going to go national any longer, but it would be people here got to hear it. We just let, kept it on, which was a smart thing to do. And then they, they had a lot of fun after the show with playing a song with Billy and you know, Stipe and Billy saying hello in there. And, and they, they, there's a lot of songs they got people up to sing. And, and it was uh, Stipe's choice for the finale to do uh, Dallas, Jimmy Dale Gilmore. Uh, I'm glad he did, and it was a lot of fun, and everybody else sang along. You know, basically it was their, they were leading, but everybody sang along. And uh, at one point, toward the end of the whole thing, I think I was standing backstage, and I said to their man, their road manager, I said, you know, hey, you want me to go out there and say this is enough now? Because they've been out there a long time, and he see, he looked at me and said, when, when Michael wants to stop, he'll stop. And I said, okay, it's his crowd, I understand that. So, and another great thing was when everybody sang along on the end of the world as we know it, right? Right. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. For Ryan Hour, his duties of warming up the crowd before the show were easier than usual. There was such an energy and a roar from the audience, even when it was silent. You could just feel it. To walk out onto that stage, and I was doing the audience warm-up, and it was palpable. You know, when, when, when they cheered, when we asked for the spontaneous cheer on cue, it, like, I could feel it pushing me back while I was standing on stage. Though the band has not physically returned to Charleston, West Virginia, their relationship with Mountain Stage did not end following that April 91 afternoon. Most people don't know that uh, for some time, and I don't know whether it was a year or as much as two years, um, Michael Stipe wrote to me with suggestions of think people he thought would be good on Mountain Stage. And that's the first place I heard of Vic Chestnut. And I, I would have kept putting Vic on every two years as long as he was here. Sadly, he's not here anymore because he was also a very interesting man and, and a sweet man. But I liked his music a whole lot. And that was, that was a wonderful introduction, so I appreciated that. Right in our notes that while pressure was high, the staff did not falter. It's probably one of the biggest things we've ever done. You know, we've taken the show to Glasgow, Scotland, and, and had some other big productions. But in terms of, of the media exposure and the pressure on us to do it right had never been greater. It's never been greater. And, and uh, the Mountain Stage folks pulled it off. The show was a milestone for Mountain Stage putting it in its biggest spotlight, helping move the show forward. We started in the late 80s putting contemporary, kind of what would be now called indie rock or indie pop bands, along with more acoustic 
folky things and country things. We, we mixed that. Well, that was something we started earlier. But what R.E.M. did was put us on the map. We were a, a show in West Virginia that was distributed by NPR and had 100 stations or whatever we had back then. And people knew about us, of course. Some did, some didn't. But all of a sudden, boom. Everybody knew who we were for a moment. And that doesn't go away. Once you're known by somebody for something, then, oh, if it's a positive thing particularly, then it's great for you ongoing. Then acts that we wanted to get in the future, we make an offer to them, and, this, and we said, you know, oh, you're the show that R.E.M. came on. Well, of course, that's going to help us out. Suddenly, we're somebody. And that's useful. When you live in a little place like West Virginia, where by and large people assume the worst, they assume you're not going to be you know, competent, professional, whatever. And then they say, well, wait a minute. Why did this band do this? And it really opened the doors for us. It really did open doors for us that put us on another level. Chris remarks that the eclectic nature of R.E.M.'s music matched the nature of the show and that no other band could have given them a moment like R.E.M. did. It was a great experience, and it was a fun experience, uh... And it was, you know, we, we were so young and so inexperienced that it wasn't as scary as it probably should have been uh, at the time. Didn't perceive how big it was until retrospect. It was a much bigger deal than, than we thought. But we still, I'm, I'm proud that we didn't change our, st- our chops and we didn't change our spots. And, and they didn't ask us to, which I really appreciate. I'm grateful for them coming on. Very, very grateful for the band and for their management and everybody, the way they came in, the way they treated us, and, and the way they performed. They were great, of course. They're a really great band. And they, they showed that right there. And they did it, you know, acoustically, semi-acoustically, uh, and showed that it really doesn't make any difference. They could do it electric. They could do it acoustic. It works great. And it really did shine a spotlight on us for a moment. And some of that uh, leftover spotlight has been, has been great for us. And I think they kind of symbolized, too, the kind of thing we like. We, you know, they, they had tremendous respect for a lot of different kinds of music. Otherwise, you wouldn't think necessarily Stipe is going to pick the, uh, uh, Jimmy Dale Gilmore song as his favorite to, to, to do, but he knows a lot of music. They did also uh, the Dan Penn song, Dark End of the Street. I mean, soul music, country music, it's, that's what Mountain Stage is. It's all of these things. And R.E.M., even though they're known as, a, as the kind of one of the archetypical indie rock pop bands, and they're very contemporary, and they were very ultra-hip and trend-setting, et cetera, and so forth, but they have great respect for all of these other kinds of music, and like what Stipe sent me wasn't just indie-sounding things. It was all kinds of things, some very traditional. So that's kind of what we've done on Mountain Stage, and therefore I'm really glad that, that what we had, the, the biggest boom we had, was made by a band like that who whose artistic integrity I think is fantastic and is right up there with, with anybody. We're, we're so grateful to have been able to do this show for so long. I have no idea how long it's going to last, but I've said that for 30 years, and I hope that I can say it for another 30 years. I hope that it continues after I'm gone because it's, it's, it's try, we're trying to do something based on a, a principle of, of trying to have some integrity, and sometimes we get it wrong, but it's not because we're trying to get it wrong. We're trying to, to uh, bring people, listeners, respect their intelligence, bring them something we think is really good 
and that's worth their consideration. Otherwise, they may not like it. <laughs> you can't make everybody like everything, but at least uh, just like Stipe did to me, send me these things and say, what do you, these, these could be good. That's what we're trying to do. Have you ever seen Dallas from a DC night at night? REM's performance from April 28, 1991 on Mountain Stage can be heard as a part of the Alf Time 25th Anniversary Deluxe Edition reissue, where it's available commercially for the very first time. For more information on Mountain Stage, including upcoming performances, podcasts, and more, visit mountainstage.org. I'm Nathan Thomas. Thank you for joining me as a big band comes to a small town. R.E.M. on Mountain Stage at 25.